Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to the Story Studio. Oh yeah, here we go. Check it out now. Welcome to the Story Studio, a podcast for an independent publishing company explores the world of self-publishing, independent art, and the future of storytelling. And I in brew, which is my drink of choice today. Is that uh, a new sponsor? Yeah, sure, why not? Yeah. I've got to, <laughs> we've got to drink as much of this as I can now because they've changed the recipe. Um <laughs> and like it, it will never be the same again. They're getting rid of this this, this recipe and you won't, you can't get it from anywhere. Else other than like Scotland. Now, answer me a question. Yeah. Surely in drinking it faster, you are depleting sources quicker <laughs> and going That's faster towards point. a new yeah. recipe. But I am sipping. You are <laughs> sip fair enough. As long as you sip quickly, that's how you get over hiccups and vomit, apparently. Um so I hear <laughs> I do need to stockpile. But welcome uh I'm joined by Daniel Wilcox. Hey Dan. Oh, that's me. Hi. Yeah. <laughs> how's the uh, how's the writing going? It's going wonderful. Um I, uh, following the last episode we recorded, mm. I had a kind of day to not write so much and to just reevaluate. I'm in an editing stage right now. So the first book in my series um, in the Cathedral Gambit world is done. Well, first draft of that. So I am currently just going through the edits and the notes and um, trying to make it all a bit slicker and a bit tighter so that we can get that rolling to the, the proper editors. So wow. yeah, having yeah. fun with it. How about yourself? Uh, so I'm editing my nano novel from last November. Um, that's been interesting. Um, mm. It's interesting because I'm editing it to the... This edit for me is all about just neatening up the language a little bit, but mainly about getting all the the facts and the, you know, the plot to kind of make sense. Because there's stuff that I realized later on that, I, that wasn't there at the start. There's like an extra character. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So I need to like just add some notes. Hi, Barry. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. There's Barry who stood at the back of the room, not saying anything to anyone until the later. Fact, yeah. I tell you what, I that is literally one of the things I'm going through with my edit. There was a character at the beginning of the book who um, is very, very lovable and very, very nice, and then he disappears. And then later on in the book, someone kind of comes and fills the void that he should be in, but it's a completely different character. <laughs> so now I have to merge them into one. Yeah. That happens. Happens all the time. Um, big whip. Have you got one? Yeah, my um, 
my big whoop is at the minute I am uh, currently working with a uh, photographer slash cover designer for the um, books in my series, which is a brand new experience because I've not worked this sort of closely with a cover designer before. Um, yeah. And it's literally, well, kind of ever really. We did the 99 design thing, which was about as close as we got, but that was kind of all digital and people were scrapping for art, weren't they? Yeah. It felt um, like uh, we would... Yeah, going to my mum's house, we had like 10 dogs, used to breed dogs. Whenever you threw <laughs> like a piece of meat or something into the kitchen floor, the dog yeah, would yeah. fight over it. If that's what 99 Designs is like. Yeah, and then you can tell someone it's not good enough and kick him in the face. Um... <laughs> Bad boy. Bad boy. <laughs> so just for anyone thinking of working with 99 Designs, I think we're, we're happy with the cover that we got in the end. We are, yeah. But, yeah. yeah, but one of the things that I did discover very quickly was a lot of the designs you'll get submitted will be based off of the person who first submits a design. Yeah. So one person will design what they think is yeah. an idea based on your description, then everyone else will go, okay, I'll do different variations of that. Yeah, yeah. And you kind of, if it's not what you want, you have to pull them away a bit and sort of be quite specific. Um, yeah. But yeah, this, I'm actually, so like I said, I'm actually working directly with a cover designer. She's um Romanian. I'll butcher her name if I try and pronounce it, so I'll kind of not, but mm. um she is setting up on Sunday that she'll be shooting a model to actually represent the character on the cover of, of the book itself, which shooting is... a model. So she'll be taking the pictures of the model fresh. Yep. Or... Oh, she, cool. Yeah. Taking yeah. pictures of the model in the clothing that I want with the weapons that I want um, in sort of various different poses. It could work sort of across several different book covers. So on Sunday I should be getting sort of to the minute snaps and previews of what my, my book cover character yeah. will be looking like which wow, is kind of a cool. strange thing yeah yeah because normally you'll say to someone this here's a rough idea of what the character is and someone yeah. will find like a stock photo or an illustration but this yeah. is a person who is now going to be my character yeah which is That's which cool. is kind of yeah. has it yeah. changed the way when you're writing editing that are you now seeing this model as that character you know what i mean is that sort of change yeah. your writing yeah yeah, yeah. well i wouldn't say it changed it too much i mean in general, I've started to follow more of a rule of being less descriptive with my characters. Okay. Because I know that then it's harder to kind of keep track of everything. If you've got like three yeah. characters with blue eyes and five of brown and everything else, I've kind you of should, deliberately been... As you go to describe in the book, put in brackets, see cover. Yeah. <laughs> and jihad, see cover, <laughs> hair. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that's, that's kind of my big whip is... Um, just it's just a whole different experience a whole new um i guess the level of production that i'm i'm enjoying i'm having fun with um yeah. like i say the cover designer is lovely and and open to ideas so um it's been a positive experience so far and we'll hopefully have um previews of the covers in the next few weeks yeah that's cool man. that's really really fun and interesting to see how it's all mm. coming together um yeah. so my like big work is take the corvus which is my um like a so I've been writing and publishing stuff for about five years now, and I just wanted a good, un, like a good portfolio, just underline those first five years uh, of short stories, and just like so, I could just send it to people, like as a bit of a, this is what I've been up to. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So our novels yeah. are one thing, but like the short stories, I, I I love writing short stories, and I think this is a good, good example of my sort of writing, I guess. Um, so and it looks beautiful. It has come out quite well, thanks to you. Mm. You uh, did all the uh, interior print book stuff. Um, I, I didn't do the art, it. though. <laughs> no, but um, yes, yeah, it's, it's quite quite well. I've got the uh, sample print book here, which is always good to see. 
Uh, there's a few things I need to change and, and re-upload to um, Amazon. But yeah, it's really it's just really good to see the, another book. It's always good to get a, a new book out. Shall I hold off ordering my copy then? Well, yeah, w- uh, wait until... I think I'm going to officially launch it on the 13th of ma- March. So I've got loads of art copies out now. We'll get some reviews. I've had one review already, which is quite nice. He, nice. he likened it to Roald Dahl's Tales of the Unexpected. That's and, good. Uh, yeah, it's cool. That's that's some nice words there. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, I could review it because I've seen half these stories anyway. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so today's show, listeners, is a cracking one. We've got a lovely interview lined up for you. Um, Dan, you do mention the, the heart rate, but we didn't record that, so I do need to quickly mention. <laughs> I have a heart rate monitor uh on my on my wrist it's for running and stuff um i'd noticed my regular resting heart rate is about 53 beats per minute and then as soon as we got this guy on for the interview it zoomed right up to like 80 because <laughs> i'm such a fanboy of this this author um like he was he was in your top five books last year he was in my top yep. five books last year he's been on our reading club uh mm-hmm. with his latest book it's uh i think we, today we're going to be focusing on um horror writing i guess in general but it's also nice to talk to a traditionally published author and also to talk to someone who writes within a pseudonym uh, because we've been talking about that ourselves and how that would work and musing on it so it's it's a really good interview i think yeah yeah he's really really nice guy and uh i think there's a lot of a lot of stuff in there that people can take away no matter if they're sort of beginning of their career and if they're thinking of going trad pub or indie we kind of hit a lot of buttons so yeah Yeah. strapping Nice. Okay, guys, um, that's all for me for now. Dan? All for me. All right, enjoy the show. Today we have a guy who isn't real. Not really, he's a made-up dude. But even though he's not real, he's still written some of the most gut-wrenching, stomach-curdling horror novels in the past few years. He even wrote something that almost made me faint on a bus once, which was pretty embarrassing. His novels include The Deep, The Troop, The Acolyte, and his most recent disturbing little number, Little Heaven. Please welcome to the show the incredible Nick Cutter. Hey Nick. Hey guys, Welcome. how are you? Not too bad. How's the uh, how's the writing coming along? Well, yeah, I was working today on. Um, I, you know, obviously, I have a, a little sideline under my under my own name of Craig Davidson. So, yeah. uh, but weirdly enough, Cutter is in in some ways eclipsed uh, me. You know. Yeah. <laughs> so, but today it was more working on um, some edits on uh, on a book uh, under my own name that's coming out. But I'm I'll get back to the Cutter stuff uh, before too long. Yeah. Do you uh do you ever get jealous of Nick Cutter? Just because you see like the books popping up on Bookstagram and, and do you ever think I wish that was my name or <laughs> <laughs> I some I guess you know I'm I'm pleased to know that uh that the books are being read and that people are enjoying them and um you know I'm talking to you from my 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 wife and I and our son's home in in Toronto and uh you know, so in order to have a home and to like kind of make a living as a writer, uh, just as a writer, um, you know, I couldn't do it just as Craig Davidson. Certainly, yeah. Nick Cutter is is the guy, the entity who is keeping <laughs> the lights on around here for the yeah. most part. Um, and that may change. You know, you never know. Swings of of fortune and swings of fate in publishing or in life basically can vacillate all over the place. But um, no, I'm I'm really happy that people are reading the books and. Uh, um, I've, I've just been really overjoyed over the past because, I mean, when when I think about it, I mean, uh, though I've been a lifelong lover of horror, I mean, The Troop yeah. came out, I think it was, I'm going to say four years ago only. 
so it, it has been a rather late break and i've been a writer you know for six or seven years before that um but yeah so it's really been a great kind of um opportunity and you know my first love has always been horror so it's really been wonderful to to get to write in that field how come you decided to use the pseudonym and not you know keep it all under the one name right yeah well that was um my agent always gets upset now when I throw him under the bus like this, but I've done it so many times. <laughs> just with it now, and I always apologize now uh, when I when I do it. But really, and it's not even him, right? He was the one who suggested it. But um, whether you guys think this way or not, um, there is kind of a general sense out there in publishing that uh, readers, your you know, kind of your just average reader, would not be able to comprehend or hold in their head the idea that there is a writer who writes this stuff on whatever this end of the spectrum you want to call it literary fiction and then this stuff on the direct polar opposite end of the spectrum or yeah. even like you know someone who writes like uh science fiction and then they decide to write i don't know something slightly different from that um you know there's a sense with publishers that readers won't even get that yeah. which to me has always been kind of um a shocking and a strange way to look at things because i mean i grew up um you know, going to libraries a lot. And it took me a long time to realize that, you know, books were shelved in a certain, you know, you, you had a certain way that you shelved books. I always just kind of broke it down into books that I enjoyed and books that I, I didn't enjoy as much, really. Um, but yeah, that was it. Basically, my, my agent said that the publishers would be more comfortable if we basically settled on a pen name. Yeah. And we would put the horror books out under that name and keep it sort of separate and sacrosanct from my own name, which... Again, I explained already, you know, you're trying to treat this as a career and you trust the people that are surrounding you and say, okay, fine, I'll do it. But um, I never wanted to, like, because I live in Toronto and we have a pretty really great um, genre community here, whether it's dark fiction or horror fiction, whatever you want to call it. And lots of my friends who I see day to day are, you know, from that community. So the last thing I wanted them to believe is that I had settled on this because I was embarrassed of the yeah. cutter work or yeah. because I. I thought it was somehow lesser and I like, Oh God, no, keep that as far away from me as I can. Um, for, you know, again, furthest thing from the truth, I grew up reading horror. I always expected I would be a horror writer. It just happened that my career turned in one direction. And I've had this lovely opportunity over the last couple of years to come back to horror, which is where I feel I belong anyways. Yeah. Sure. Do you feel that you would have had the same success if it was under the one name? Well, that's another question that I guess I've thought about, you know, um, over the years too. I'm not, I'm, it's, it's so interesting now to me because now it's so separate in my head, like not the actual writing, the writing itself is, um, you know, I put the same amount of effort into both, whether it's a Craig book or a Nick book, but the sense that I would have put these, these books out under my own name is, um, I almost can't even imagine it really. <laughs> I don't know why that is, I guess, just because in reality, the way it happened is that I didn't do it that way. Um, you know, and literally I will go to a, a book event uh, and, you know, my name tag will say Nick and people will call me Nick, you know. So even as yeah. as hard as I've tried to kind of make sure it's understood that, no, I, my name is actually Craig. I'm not Nick. This is a pen name. Um, some people, even the organizers of the event, seem to think that I'm Nick and um, I've, I've come to start answering to Nick sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're me, me. OK, well, fine. And I'll go through an entire event basically answering to Nick. Yeah. Um, so. So no, I I, I I would have been fine had they come out as Craig. Um, I really would have been. It just so happened that they didn't, and now I can't even kind of um, contextualize in my head how it would have worked if they had of. Yeah. 
I like it. It's a good name as well, Nick Cutter. <laughs> well, yeah, very horror yeah. Isn't it though? Nick is our son's name, so we uh, will yeah. see what goes up in the roundness of time if he thinks that's so clever. <laughs> yeah. Decided that I, I decided to do. Uh, yeah, so, you know, and, and I mean, in, in, in the days going forward, I mean, the one thing too, kind of a bit insider baseball about this, is that if you do come out under a new name, um, it's like you're kind of like tabula rasa amongst publishers, you know, because as Craig Davidson, you know, I'd put out these books and they had had whatever success they had had, but it also, you get a tail, I guess you'd call it, you know, you, you, you have a string of, you know, you sold this many number of books and you've had this mm -hmm. level of success. And when you start over, um, there is something that, that publishers like about a clean slate and about an author who, um, has no history attached to him or her. Which is kind of annoying, right? Because you figure, like, as a writer, you should be getting better as you go along. Yeah. And, you know, ideally that you're, just like any career, that you're getting getting better at what you're doing. And you'd think that your, say, seventh, eighth, ninth books might be your best books. Sometimes, in a, in a sense of a publisher, they're, they're like, well, they might, they might well be, but you've already kind of established a, a track record for yourself that's not so glowing. Yeah. Um, so we never know. I mean, is there a third... Uh, pen name lurking out there <laughs> i don't know not for horror for sure anything i ever read under horror will be under nick but you yeah. know if i decide to turn my hand to some different genre it might I'm, it might be best might serve me best to come out in a different name i can kind of understand it so if someone saw you know the rust, rust and bone film or something and then came to the troop I imagine they'd be pretty distraught <laughs> <Right>. just, uh, <laughs> how different it is well yeah they might be or you know you'll see i mean i don't make a habit of reading reviews um mm anymore because they're i mean the good ones you feel like you you feel like they've missed something or they're letting you off easy and the bad ones you feel like oh you've you found my secret heart and you've destroyed me you know you've <laughs> stole, snatched a piece of my soul um but but one thing people do say is they'll read you know they'll read a craig book and they'll say oh it's nothing like the cutter stuff and i they don't like it as much and then vice mm -hmm. versa they'll They'll have read the Craig stuff and then they'll read a, a, a cutter book and they won't like it as much. And, and that I guess speaks to like the reason, you know, maybe there is something to the publishers saying that like, you know, readers have tastes and a lot of readers like myself, of course, I, I like a wide spectrum of stuff. I imagine you guys are probably the same way, but even if you're not, that's fine. But there are some readers who like, if you're, they're put outside of their thresholds of taste or whatever they really react very unfavorably like you've stolen yeah. eight or nine or ten or twelve hours of their time it's like they've got a certain expectation if you don't hit that exact expectation they revolt <laughs> yes, <laughs> you get so angry right. yeah and, yeah. and I mean, in a way you're like you i mean you get it you know um you know that's what that's just part of being a writer or i guess any creative person is that you um you establish readerly expectations in this case and and I, I mean, I want to fall through. I, I feel like it's important. It's incumbent upon me to like, um, you know, please your readers, you know, yeah. and, uh, and, and so, and sometimes you just can't though, because that you're balancing that desire with, um, the desire to tell the stories you want to tell as well. And sometimes the story you're going to want to tell is going to be a bit outside of what you've told before, because, you know, ultimately you might've gotten bored of that, or you feel like you've told that story already. Um, and that's when some readers get like, Hey, yeah. you know you're turning mm. the table on us or something and and you know and and you sympathize with that but at the same point hopefully they sympathize with your ambition to do something a little different from time to time yeah so so you got stephen king giving you blurbs 
and then it cuts her, her name. Yeah. You, you've been on the Joe Rogan podcast, and now you've, yes. really, now you've really hit the big time of our show. So, uh... <laughs> <laughs> it's very like lucky kind of um, situations, you know. I, I had nothing to, to do with them, obviously. They mm. it just kind of like behind the scenes, someone gives the book to so-and-so, and then it gets to so-and-so, and then you get a phone call, or your agent gets a phone call, or you get an email saying, you know, so you realize how much, um, you know, of life in general, probably, mm. but certainly the writing life is based on just um, little, I mean, you work hard for it, obviously, but I mean, there are certain little bits of happenstance and circumstance that you can't, uh, you know, you, you, you can't make come to you. They just come sort of out of, out of luck. And those two, certainly I had no idea about, yeah. I mean, I knew Joe, I knew Joe sort of from, you know, as a UFC uh, commentator and I knew him from fear factor and, yeah. but I had no idea he set up this kind of separate entity as a podcaster and had such an enormous uh, fan base. I think it's like one so of the I biggest think, shows on, on yeah. The, yeah, in the world, yeah. Yeah, just on forever, God bless yeah. him, but you know, it's like marathon shows, yeah. um, which, you know, is great, and his fan base loves it, and he's like a super, like, sort of a polymathic uh, uh, intelligence, he sort of knows, and he's very declarative about the things that he believes in. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it was it was a lot of fun, and um, and I think probably, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know, I think, Weirdly enough, the King King Blurb and the Rogan podcast probably run neck and neck for that book yeah. for um, getting attention drawn to it. Yeah. Well, did you? So did you have to fly out to Joe because he he records in yes, LA? Yes. Me for some goddamn reason. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah no. Yeah. He, uh, he's actually got like a. Um, it's like in a shop front in kind of a Los Angeles, like a suburb sort of a thing. It's like you know, chiropractic clinics and kind of. Uh, restorative therapy type shop fronts and he's got it, the the glass is all smoked and you know i kind of open the door and like yeah am i in the right place and then you <laughs> see the inner sanctum and you see the he's got that werewolf i don't know if you've ever seen he's got this giant maybe, like maybe. it's awesome it's like the werewolf from um an american werewolf in london like yeah. in the midst of it transformation you know and it's got to be like it's it's a it's, a, it's a, not a model it's almost looks like a stuff like a taxidermied thing and it's got to be like eight feet yeah. Um, wow. Yeah, I'm looking at that, and I'm like, okay, I'm I'm clearly in the right spot. <laughs> uh, Could you so, yeah. smell the marijuana coming like wafting out of well, there? It's a bulletproof coffee at that point. Oh you right, yeah. But yeah. I know, and uh, so I had my first taste of that, and uh, um, yeah, I mean, it's great. Like he is a, a really solid, good um, dude, and that was very, very helpful in a way that I wasn't I wasn't aware of. And I got you know got a got a flight out to L.A. and got to meet with some other people while I was there. So. Yeah. Yeah, overall, it was it was a cool opportunity. Yeah. Would you say that's one of the benefits of working with an agent? Because I think as um, myself and Luke are very much independently published sort of through and through, all that all that I end up seeing anyway is a lot of sort of negativity towards traditional publishing and working with agents. Sure, How, sure. How's your kind of experience been in, in the 2018 world? Oh, well, that's it. I mean, I... You know, I'm not I'm not a, a voice of dissent here. It's like there are different ways to get your books out there, obviously. And like I don't uh, look down at any way that you're going to get your stuff out there. And there is like there's no way that um, like, for example, I read Wool a couple mm. years ago, by Hugh Howie, which felt like you ask yourself, how could that possibly have fallen through the cracks of traditional publishers? How could they not have found that book? Yeah. Love that book like recognized how brilliant that book was. And that's just one of 
you know, many. Um, and you also hear other books, you know, that, that get published to great acclaim being rejected by whatever, 30, 40, 50 agents or editors, well, probably agents before that, if they, if the person did go the, so like, you know, they, uh, you know, they are, there is that gatekeeper aspect, I think, to, um, to agents and then the conduit to editors. Um, I guess in mine, like my, my agent, like I've had a couple now, so I've, I'm, I'm now with, um, a guy called Kirby Kim, who was awesome. You know, you, 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 I think if you find the right agent, mm. you know, and like, you and I are like friends, he came to my wedding. Um, I trust him. And then it's like a friendship and a partnership. And, um, we, you know, it doesn't mean that we don't have conflict sometimes or that we don't, we, we disagree in the way that a certain thing should be done. But also like in this day and age, I've discovered that your agent is also your first editor, yeah. you know, so I will send my book to, Kirby first, and he will take a really hard, crunchy look at it, and I will be beholden pretty much to make those changes because I know they're necessary changes. And then we might go back and forth two or three times, so it's almost like a pre-edit, mm. and then send it out to whoever. And it's good because you know because he will he knows enough of, in the New York publishing world that he would tailor his submission to people that he knew and felt like would be intri intrigued by the work. Um, so in that, so for me, and I couldn't do that on my own. Like even mm. now at this point, I couldn't say I want to send it to so and so, you know, at a big publisher. Um, I certainly couldn't send it to twenty people or twenty five or thirty, which is sometimes what what an agent will do in like a massive kind of submission. And then if even if I did get an offer, I wouldn't know what the hell. I wouldn't know how to. I'd probably be like, oh, how you want to give me five dollars? <laughs> okay, yeah. yeah. Good. Uh, so, you know, in that way you have an agent to sort of stick up for you and tell you what your worth is, even when you might not think it's that, you yeah. know, um, but you know, on the, on the other end, uh, you know, I've heard of tons of bad agents experiences and mm. people who have trusted agents and those agents have given them wrong information, somehow made their book worse, which shocking to me, but does happen, you know, because you know, if a writer implicitly trusts that agent and then and and makes changes to the book that that agent, I mean, I remember I had an agent that said with my first book that I think I was like change the gender of a character or make them some like and just something that betrayed like no knowledge of the book at all, yeah. you know, hmm. might have been based on like uh, something that was currently out there in the market, like such and such is really hot right now. So why don't we just bend this, bend this so that it it fits that. And you think, well, you know, that that seems like pretty narrow, um, short-term thinking. Yeah. So in any case, that's kind of a belabored answer to say that I'm with an agent, but I don't, you know, I can yeah. see people who wouldn't be with them. Um, but I would, I think I would, I would even recommend any anyone who is doing self-publishing or, you know, um, to at least try that route, you know, and and you know, you sorry, see if you can find an agent. And if that works out, it doesn't work out, then okay, maybe you maybe you find another approach. But you know, yeah. again, I'd I'd go through a couple of agents before I found the one that like we fit, we meshed. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it worked. So so if you we've been talking uh, you know five or six years ago when I was with an old agent, I might have said, oh, they're terrible. Don't 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 do it, guys. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like you found like a, just a really good business partner in general. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. He he knows his stuff, and and yeah. he and you have to. It's a trust thing too, because obviously yeah. you're giving other than your own, you know, children or you know, spouses. You are giving yeah. something that is like kind of the the essence of you in some way. 
So if you're giving, you're giving it to someone who you feel is not trustworthy or is not going to like shepherd that properly. Like why, why bother? You could, you could do a better job yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Do you get nervous when you send the email or or the, or the letter or whatever to the agent? Do you ever get like, uh, Ooh, do you ever check your wristwatch and go, Oh, my heart rate's increased. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, that less, I think what, what, uh, you know, one thing that even after whatever, 13 years doing this, um, you know, basically, once your book is is set, your agent has agreed that that he or she likes it. Yeah. Then it goes out on submission, and that to me is actually the most nerve wracking part. Is when, um, when your book is out there with those twenty editors or however many it is who are looking at it, and you know, you kind of get like the first week, you're like, eh, you know, it never happens this fast. You know, yeah. yes, okay, you're the apocrypha where it's like. You know, it goes out and then the next morning someone calls up with a preemptive offer of like a million bucks or something. But you're like, that's rare for any of us. Yeah. And, but then the second week you're like, shoot, it's probably gotten rejected. Or you might have it set up with your agent that he or she is going to call you with every rejection, which I, I don't. But, you know, basically as it gets into week three or four, you're like, ah, oh, this is brutal. This, this, Why did I even do this in the first place? This was an yeah. awful idea. I should have been a writer. But, I mean, ultimately, like, there's no way around it either. Like, uh, like I said, no, I'm not a – I guess I'm a – mid-veteran at this you know you'll you'll yeah. talk to people i've been doing it for 30 40 50 years but i found nothing in the in the 13 years i've been doing this that like would allow you to not have to go through that crucible yeah there's you know what i mean it's like if you're whatever your job is the peculiarities of that job are what they are and i guess one of the peculiarities or particularities of being a writer is that you have to get rejected and that you have to go through these long waiting periods and you have to constantly, most of us anyways, have to constantly face um, this sense that you are, you still need to have something to prove, which mm-hmm. is good in a way because it keeps you hungry, but it's bad in a way because you're like, oh, haven't I, you know, what else do I have to do? Yeah. No. Yeah. So were you writing short stories, setting last publication? What, what, how did you get into the writing thing? What's like your like origin yeah, story in all this? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Um, Mine would be, yeah, yeah, I started out writing short stories. Um, I went, I ended up going to a university program, like a master's program of creative writing out in the eastern end of Canada. And you needed to do a thesis at that point. And um, I always say I would have, I would have done like a horror book. That would have been my natural inclination at that point. I was, you know, my mid 20s or something. And but they would, you know, university structure at that point, hopefully it's changed. But at that point, it was like, you're absolutely not doing anything genre period. Yeah. You know, uh, <laughs> just not in an academic program, especially in Eastern Canada, which is a little restrictive. It was just not it. You know, it had to be uh, something that they, they, they considered to have literary merit. And I really hope that's changing now. And I think it is. I think that I think it is. I think there's a proliferation of writing programs. And there's also a sense that like, listen, we want to get the best work out of these students. So if someone comes in with a sci-fi novel concept or a fantasy novel concept or a horror novel concept, I mean, if that's what they really want to write, we should we should have the staff uh, on site and we should also have the, um, not the narrowness of focus that we wouldn't allow them to do that. Hmm. But my own thing was like, okay, basically, Craig, you're gonna have to, I didn't have a novel idea, so write some short stories. Yeah. So I did. And uh, and then that's, that ended up becoming Rust and Bone. You know, my oh, okay. I, I, yeah. I called yeah. the thesis, but it was it wasn't Rust and Bone. I think it was Twenty Eight Bones actually was was the thesis, and um, 
And then I was living in Toronto and scuffling for work as I, as I often was in those days. And I got an agent, my first agent, and she uh, took the manuscript and uh, gave it to a, like literally at a cocktail party, she gave it to the head, then head of Penguin Canada. And he did one of those things where you, you know, he went home and I guess that night and a little bit in the next morning he read it. And then he called back, called her the next day and said, I want to make an offer. Wow. And uh, How did that feel? so that was, that, yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I've been years and years and years of rejection too. I, I guess I glossed over that point. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you know, I, I'm old enough that like when I was doing it, I was printing stuff up, putting them in envelopes, sending them off with the self-addressed stamped envelope and, and waiting for what I hoped were acceptances. But ultimately back then were you know, like given to you in little slips of paper, your rejection slip. And I, I, I never had the, the dismal attitude that I would I would collect them, but if I had of, I've always said I could probably have filled a pillowcase yeah. and had a very wow. terrible night's sleep on that kind of <laughs> frankly pillow of failure. Yeah. So I mean, again, the, to me though, even back then, I felt like, well, what? There seems no way around this. You know, I kind of looked at every angle and I kind of looked at the people that I grew up admiring writing, and I'm like, it seems like they've all gone through this. Hmm. So I felt like, okay, well here's my, I'm in the pit right now and I'm, you know, making my mistakes and I'm trying to get better. And, um, and maybe I am, maybe I'm not, I don't really know. But, um, when it happened, it happened really quickly. Like the floodgates opened and I think I had like four acceptances in terms of, uh, like in journals or magazines in a row. And, um, and then the, the agent and then this other thing. So like you went from nothing to something rather quickly, you know, and that, yeah. that just was the way it was. But then, but then, you know, my second novel came out and it was a complete flop and I, you know, <laughs> was back, you know, scuffling hand to mouth again. So there's no sense as a writer, at least, you know, for most of us, that um, that the path of success is going to be like a continual upward sort of a thing. You're, you're going to have um, downwards periods and you're going to maybe hopefully spike up again. And uh, again, I don't really like I mean, there are some writers you could say, no, they've never suffered that. But those are probably outliers and there are some people when you, when you just look at it like that their talent is so immense that it, it's just like a there there should never have been any doubt about that you know what i mean stephen king or clive barker or something like that if you want to use some horror examples like it's yeah. just but even stephen king struggled you know what i mean mm. at first planning for your next trip Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. But at the same point, you're like, there's no reason that once they started, they yeah. would have ever anything but continue to go up sort of a thing. But, but I mean, for most of us, it's like I've said to myself, I need to be like, one one hundredth as successful as Stephen King or less. And I can yeah. everything that I ever wanted to do as a writer. You know, I can like help support my family. I can get books out. I can have movie adaptations made of my work. You know, like all of that is possible. It's great that Stephen King exists. It's great that we have him, you know. Yeah. But you know, the worst thing sometimes is when some publisher does that blurb of like, well move aside, Stephen King. Here comes <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Like Stephen King not going anywhere. Stephen King will never have to go anywhere, mm-hmm. um, uh, and the and the rest of us can just be happy he's there, that he he continues to be there, and you know can aspire towards some of that. But at the same point, recognize that you can still like, you know, delight hundreds of thousands of of readers, and you don't need to be Stephen King. Yeah. So you See, I really like. Oh, uh, oh, sorry. I was gonna say I really like what you kind of hit on with the whole mindset, and in terms of you knew that's what other people had gone through. There was no other way around in terms of submission, rejection, submission, rejection. There are a lot of stories that you hear of just left, right, and center from people that have quote unquote tried to be writers who would get their first rejection and just pass that aside. But I think I, I, I completely respect anyone that can just keep going and keep going and keep going. Cause like you say, it's, you won't really hear of many stories of people that haven't been through that process, even indie published, traditional published a- anyone at all. Most people have written flop in order to get successes. And I think that's something that people should cling on to. I completely agree. And I I feel like I've been, I've been around a lot of really talented writers who ultimately aren't doing it now. Uh, Yeah. Because of exactly what you said, it's sort of like the, the bark on their trees wasn't, I just always assumed you needed that bark. Mm -hmm. And some people feel like, well, if you don't like me, that really hurts. And I'm like, I get it. It hurts me too. It really hurts me too. But like you are, uh, you know, you want to tell them you are an incredibly talented writer, but you need that one pair of considered eyes, you know, as an editor or a supporter or something that is going to get you over that hump. But if you don't stick in the pit and stick in the game and keep swinging, then you're, you might never get that opportunity. You know what I mean? So, and I'm not saying they're not happy doing what they're doing now. I think they're very happy doing what they're doing now. But I, I also felt like, listen, you guys had the talent to be successful you know, working writers. Um, and all, the only thing you're missing, the only thing at all was probably the understanding that it wasn't going to be easy and, and easy and that, that you were going to get, you were going to get chipped away at a bit. You know what I mean? And there's yeah. no way around that. I mean, even if, you know, you know, honestly, even if a book comes out and your editor loves it and, and in-house, everybody seems to love it. You know, you, you, all you have to do is type your name into Google <laughs> to discover not everybody likes it. Right. So, yeah. um, so that's been a great thing for me. And I think a lot of, right. Not great. Cause you don't really want to see that, but it also realizes that, listen, if you're, if you're traveling a kind of a narrative or, a, or a, I don't know, like an aesthetic through line that really is meaningful to you, 
probably not everyone's going to like it. You know what I mean? Like it's, and if you're trying to write something that everybody likes, it's probably not going to be very good because you've, you've kind of tried to polish all the angles so that no one could be upset with it. So it's like sort of be yourself, write the stuff you want to write, say the things you want to say and wade through the fire until you get that pair of considered eyes. Who's going to say, I see exactly what you're seeing. And I'm, I'm, I'm down for this challenge with you. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned Stephen King and Clive Barker. Um, I'm curious as to like, what horror authors were you reading as a kid or what genre authors were you reading as a kid that sort of influenced these these horror novels you're writing now? Uh, it's probably a fairly like I mean King is an is an enormous influence probably probably more so than 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 I would like even but um you know I started <laughs> reading him so early that I, I've said uh it's almost like a, a baby duck imprinting on a you know on the, on the yeah. mama duck it's like it's very difficult for me to kind of um, like I can't read him anymore, which is, is distressing to me, but I feel like it's just, he's already had so much of an influence. I can't risk him having any more <laughs> of an influence. Yeah. So, and, and his style is so not imitable, I guess, you know, cause it, it's definitely its own thing. But like when you read say Barker, yeah, you're like, it's only Barker, only Barker can do Barker, that lush kind of Baroque, beautiful kind of yeah psychosexual stuff that he yeah. does you know what i mean weirdly it's, it's arousing it, right yeah weirdly <laughs> awesome. really weird um you know but there, you know there's others like say robert mccammon who also yeah. was huge for me the american writer um you know who feel like more like folksy homey there's not any sort of pyrotechnics it's not necessarily deep uh flights of fantasy it's it's just really strong characterization and and sort of just powerful sentence by sentence writing and it and it seems so yeah i love him um i mean i, I certainly in terms of like some of the stuff that i write i'm really influenced by film too yeah. you know like the work of cronenberg my my own countryman and um that's the, that's, uh, that makes sense with the body horror sort of yeah uh, stuff. yeah yeah, like yeah. or and and uh, john carpenter yeah uh you know, I mean, there, there's, there's tons and I, I, you know, I try and read t more every day. Um, you know, and a lot of it is one-off stuff, like stuff from the, like, I just read the auctioneer, uh, which was done back in the sixties by, by an author who passed away shortly after it came out. So she never got a chance to write anything else, but, um, you know, or Thomas Tyron's the other, I just read not too long ago or the case against Satan. I'm just looking at my, uh, the rim of, Oh, the rim of mourning by, uh, uh, William Sloan is an, was an awesome book. Yeah. Uh, so these are all like old ones, you know? Yeah. So I think I've read so much contemporary horror and loved it, obviously. Uh, I mean, obviously amongst contemporaries, like Bird Box was great. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, Paul Tremblay's stuff is awesome. Uh, Joe Hill, Ben Percy, you know, there's lots, there's so many, uh, you know, yeah. I should, yeah. I should mention more, more females too, because you know, there are, there are a lot of great women out there doing horror right now. Yeah. Uh, you know, outside of obviously Anne Rice, but, um, uh, you know, and I read outside of it. Well, I just read like the Lathe of Heaven and um, some other Le Guin books, sort of a thing. So, yeah, I, I try and read pretty widely um, outside of horror, and um, but I rarely read like more than a couple books by a given author because I just feel like there's just so many great books out there yeah. um, that you want to like kind of spread yourself around. And also, right now, I, I tend to read quite a few books for blurbs, which is great because yeah. I've had. To, um, support on that um, in in my career, so it's it's like kind of uh, returning the favor. Uh, so yeah, I read a lot of um, like I'm reading Dathan. I, I don't know how to say his name. Like Dathan Auerbach, he did Pen Pal. 
Oh, I know the book that I've got. Oh, you know, you've yeah, heard of it? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, and uh, it's it's creepy. It's a good, yeah. creepy book. And, and Pen Pal did, uh, was really kind of like an underground sort of sensation. And I can see from this new book, I'm like, yeah, okay, I can see where that, that came from. He's got a really... Well, that's incisive... sort of a creepypasta sort of uh, feel to yeah, it. Exactly. Yeah, I think that, yeah, exactly. I think, in fact, that might have been where he got his... Uh, right. Got his from the creepypasta, which, yeah. again, I'm 42, I'm a little bit too old, but I do try... <laughs> That, yeah. that well, I'm like, oh, there's some interesting stuff here. Yeah. Just, uh, just want to double check. So, in Little Heaven, I always pick it up a bit of uh, Brian Usner's Society as well. Oh, was there any? God, of that yeah, yeah, I love Usna. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And Society was, I forget what they called that process where they were all the shunting. Melting. <laughs> shunting. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Well, he, he was from Beyond too, wasn't he? He did the yeah from Beyond. Uh, from yes, Beyond. got it. Yeah. Oakland came out of. That was like an H.P. Lovecraft sort of a deal. Yeah. 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 No, that's, you know, and a lot of it, too, is, um, you know, you you come up with stuff and to you it feels like you've come up with it. But later when you realize, like, yeah, I just I've read and watched so much that, mm. like, you know, that you clearly your influences are there and I'm not going to. <laughs> last thing I would do is try to, um, uh, you know, I think with my newest book, I'm going to even maybe in the afterward go like, OK, I'm going to I'm going to forensically diagnose you know where some of these ideas i think they came from um just just for the heck of it because i don't think i've ever seen anybody any other writer do that in his or her work no one and, admits that well yeah but you know it's interesting <laughs> to kind of kind of do it because i mean honestly the the number of like in like say have you guys read house of leaves yeah dan has i've like, got dan's copies there, on the like, show that is original in the way that it's written it mm. is original in the way that it's presented it, the idea mm. itself is like Holy the whole shit. thing scared me because I didn't understand why I was scared. Yes. Yeah, 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 mm. yeah. And it's such a simple concept. A house that mm. is bigger on the on the inside than on the outside. On the outside. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. How scary. Well, yeah, it's <laughs> it's enormously scary the way he presents it. So um but even say like that, you know, and this is important for me too. Like I read a lot of older stuff. Mm. And like again, I read The Auctioneer, which is about basically about this auction uh creepy auctioneer who comes into a town and he starts like forcing the community to sort of give items to this auction and he sort of slowly but surely um takes over this town like emotionally and physically by taking more and more and more from the townspeople and kind of getting them under his thumb mm. and i it hadn't been long ago that i had read needful things yeah and it's like there, you know, and and then I read that Stephen King very much in debts and says, yeah, that you know, some of the ideas from Needful Things came from reading this book, which I never even knew about the auctioneer. So to me, that's like I need to hear that because I yeah. need to hear like it didn't come out of nowhere that you know even his ideas you know have some sort of um, hit, historical basis in something that he read or seen or or you know sort of thing. And obviously, Needful Things and the auctioneer are very different books. It's, but you can see there's a shared through line. It's the, uh, like the creative family tree. Have you ever read Austin Kleon's Steal Like an Artist no. book? He talks about no. how you can, any sort of piece of work, you can normally like, work it back, like the genealogy of it, and find the various <laughs> influences. So it makes like a family tree. And it's, uh, oh, it's really that, yeah. And that, yeah. you know, that's, that, that would, sorry, who, did, who wrote that? Uh, Austin Kleon. It's called Steal okay. Like an Artist. Yeah, it's really good. Oh, I think I might have heard heard of that actually. So yeah. yeah, and that, you know, in 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 you know, that's just um you know, I can count on one hand I feel like the books that I've read or movies that I've seen that feel like there there's no precedent to them. Yeah. That they must have come out of that artist's uh, mind, his or her mind kind of in a 
in something that has no genesis and anything other than what that artist came up with. Um, and, and especially ones that are good, you know, I mean, there are, I guess there are ones that aren't very good that, you know, there's no precedent yeah. for, but maybe there's a reason for that. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, I, I can think of, I can think of a couple and, and at the top of it lately, obviously it's been, it's been House of Leaves. Yeah. Um, but that's such a balancing act for him too. Cause I've tried his, his follow-up books and I just like, I can't mm. get into those ones. You know, See, I, mean? I don't know if anything could match against that. That's such a richly unique book that where right. do you go from that? Well, exactly. And I think he must struggle with that as well. I mean, yeah, he's yeah. getting bigger and uh, sort of and, and inventive and and, got, and it's great that he's doing that, you know. And I think, too, like once you do something like House of Leaves, to me, that's like the Eminem mic drop moment. You're just like, yeah. it doesn't really <laughs> matter what he does for the rest of his career. Clearly, it matters to him. Mm. But I think no matter what, he'll always have House of Leaves. And yeah. for most of us, um, if we can get one of those in our life, that's um, that's wonderful. I think I think the other, you know, I've said this before. There are kind of two ways your careers can go: is either have like an out of the box hit, maybe three ways if you're looking at it that way. Out of the box hit, and you struggle with like, ah, am I ever going to meet this again? And and some people do, some people don't. Or then it's like your third, fourth book is is kind of your breakout book, and um, or or the other one is you just kind of have a career and you, you know, look back after 30 years and you're like, holy shit, I've been doing this for 30 years. And maybe mm. you've never had a house of leaves or uh, mm. whatever, but you've all, you've just been in there. You've been in the game and, and you've, you've kind of um, managed to, to be there and doing the thing that you love to do. Um, and, 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 that, and unfortunately with that, there's a whole bunch of like, am I going to still be in the game? It's sort of something that you can only look at the end of the racetrack and be like, holy cow, I'm, I'm still, I'm still here. I'm still breathing at the end of it. Um, but yeah, me and my writing buddies talk about that, you know, a lot, like, yeah. what would you rather have? And I, obviously I think most of us would rather have, you know, the big book that you can just be like, okay, huh, the pressure's off, but most yeah. of us won't have. That, so, so we're just gonna, um, be happy to be in the game. Yeah. So we are sort of flying through the time. Uh, I've got a, a couple more questions, uh, and sure. then we'll, then we'll answer the quick fire round. Do you want to, so we, you talked about sort of maybe these harder times. I know there's a lot of writers out there who might be at a point in their career where they're sort of really struggling. They're, they're thinking maybe just sort of throwing in the towel. And Ronnie, have you ever been in a similar sort of situation in your career? And sort of what, what did you tell yourself to sort of bring you out of that and, and move forward with it? Yeah, for sure. I've been there for sure. And, um, you know, there's no saying I won't be there again, you know? Um, so, I guess the last time it happened was between my second book and then my, my, my book after that. And, you know, I just worked, I worked day jobs and I, I wrote in my free time and I probably, it goes back to earlier is like, I, I reckon also, I reckon that I needed to get better. Hmm. I think that was part of it too. I, I realized that I had made mistakes. I had not paid attention to my editor and my agent and people who I probably should have. Um, been paying attention to. And so a lot of it was, you know, I think my second book came out when I was 29. So it was like hubris, you know, which is whatever. That's par for the course at that age. Some people are 60 and still are full of hubris, you know, but mine was specifically unearned hubris because I hadn't really done anything to um, think that this ought to be like, okay, now I'm a writer, right? I'll just do this for as long as I want to do and then I'll quit. Um, so I think it's like read good books. Um, also read bad books that do well. Yeah. So you're like, I know I'm better than this. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, that's actually weirdly important. And it's, it's important. You feel guilty person. reading those books, eh? Well, you do. You feel like <laughs> you're brain a little bit, but it, de it depends. You, you can read books that are say written mm. badly. Um, 
but they have a certain propulsion. You know, you can read those books too. I've read those books and I have to recognize, okay, I, I do see what makes this enjoyable for readers, even though if I might think sentence by sentence, line by line, this is not terribly good. Yeah. But there is a certain kind of momentum that it gathers and a certain propulsion that I, you know, and that that's, you know, you can bring that into your own writing. You know, how does how does he or she do this? Like, what is I find that's been a fun part of being a writer is, you know, you see other books as like an engine and you want to take it apart yeah. and look at how it works. And like, OK, what are they doing here? You know, how, in this line and this plot line, what are they doing? How does it elicit this emotional reaction out of me? Um and then, you you know, you're building your own engine. It's a different engine, but it's kind of like you're recognizing what is working in these other propulsion systems. Yeah. So, I mean, I was probably doing quite a bit of that as well. Um, and, I mean, honestly, I was just struggling. Truthfully, it was tough. I mean, there's no other way to say that. Like, I'd be lying if I said that I didn't, like, have Dark Nights in the Soul or, like, in the Witching Hours. I was just like, what the hell? Like, what yeah. the hell is going on here? Um, and, again, I probably defor- go back to some of the other stuff I've said. It's like there – if there is a if there is a way around that, I am not aware of it. And I can I can promise you both and anyone who might be listening is that like any writers I've talked to who have had any kind of career, they have said the exact same thing. You know, yeah. they've gone through those moments. And it bushwhacks you. It comes out of nowhere sometimes. You don't you don't know. You think everything's going along great and then the wheels fly off. So it's sort of like this is what you love and this is what you're committed to doing, and these are the risks of it. And so you just accept that and you get on with it. You just got to go through it. Mm. Cool. Uh, Dan, I've got one more question. I don't know about you if, you, um, if you've got anything you wanted to ask. I've got a question, but I'm kind of scared of the answer as well. Um, right. So I wrote an article at the end of last year, which is my top five books of last year, and your The Troop came out number one on my things that I read last year. Absolutely oh, loved it. One of the things that I wrote in my sort of mini review was how how you managed to attack all five senses when it actually comes to being gross. <laughs> and one of the things I wanted to ask was, what's your inspiration for such deliciously cruel metaphors and descriptions? <laughs> because I've, I've never great. felt... That's a writer it's... question. That's, a, that's yeah. a writer to writer question. Well, you know what? Back when I wrote that, I uh, I had like the old tower computer and a monitor, you know, and a big like boxy monitor. And uh, I did the first draft. And I'm like, this is working. Uh, but usually what usually my second draft is where things get really crunchy and and like if you have a, if I have a scene that's like a page, that's where it gets to be like two pages. And that's where and I had on the side of my computer, I just took like a Sharpie and I wrote all the five senses, okay. you know, touch, yeah. smell, hearing, whatever. And so when I go back into the re-edit, it was like, how can I hammer on any one of those particular senses to mm-hmm try and pull the reader deeper into this scene, um, trying to find a fun way to evoke that kind of sense. Because, um, no, no, you know, often with books, you're writing it, maybe you guys realize too when you're writing it, the first thing is sight. Mm, you know, we're yeah. like, well, the scene looks like this. We see this happening, this happening, that happening. And some of the lesser ones are, again, like taste. How does something, t- how does something feel? What's the smell of something? What, what is the sound of something? I mean, Bird Box did that really well. You know what I mean? You know, he kind of forced that to happen because you know the characters couldn't see but you know you realize how terrifying sounds can be or or how how gross a certain sound can be you know Mm. what i mean and so those were kind of and i gotta admit i was cackling like an idiot (laughs) (laughs) i just thought it was fun and i thought god maybe someone's gonna one day and (laughs) that was what's fun about it you know i really enjoyed writing that book and i'm i'm you know i'm working on uh 
kind of uh, on a, on a cutter book now actually as well. And those are the scenes that I really, I mean, I like all the, all the scenes, but the mm. ones where you really get to like, just take the restrictor plates off and just like uh. go bananas. And that's, so that's how I did it. That's how I did it. Yeah. That's interesting. It's a difficult balancing act, isn't it? Cause I've seen books where people have tried and then they've just kind of gone way too far and you're like, all right, pull back a little bit. But <laughs> it seems to, feel, it seemed to kind of fit the scenes really, really well to a point where it wasn't distracting. Yeah. Well, I think too, you're probably dancing on the edge of a razor blade without even knowing it really. You know what I mean? When you're writing it or those other people you're talking about, they're probably so into it. I, I would assume anyways, that they, they don't even know when they've stepped off the path and suddenly they're, you know, but that's been a big part of my life. Even under Craig Davidson, you know, I've had, um, I've had scenes where, where my editor will say to me, Craig, this is like, you can have this scene. You can have the brutality of this scene, but you got it. You got to earn it. You know what I mean? Like, and they're, they're like, you just, it seems like you just wanted to write this scene so bad that you kind of steered the characters into it, but it doesn't feel earned. Right. So a lot of that is the second or third draft too, is like, okay, Craig, you've had this scene. The scene is fine and it's actually fun, but the work has got to be put in before this scene with these characters to make it make sense why they're, why this is happening at this point. So, yeah. yeah. Just in case uh, listeners are curious, I mentioned at the top of this episode that I nearly fainted reading the troop. And the scene, if you're curious, was I think um, is when Ephraim uh, is trying to, I think he gets a knife or something. He's trying to get the oh uh, the self mutilation yeah. part of it. Yeah, there's something about that that I just I had to read a sentence, look away. <laughs> well, it's, everyone's got their own buttons, you know what I yeah. mean? Everyone's got their own things that really, really, you know, kind of ick them out, or, or you know, whether it's self mutilation or a lot of people with that book, it was. Uh, the turtle scene. Oh they, God! They, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I got that too. You know? the end. Yeah. Yes, they're so well. In any case, yeah. You never know, right? It's that's mm. one of the fun things. I'm sure you guys feel it too, as being a writer. Is you 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 write it thinking this is going to be the reaction or this scene is going to elicit this, and then you realize that's you know my big thing with the troop was like, uh, you know, no one. I didn't even think anyone was going to buy it because here we got a bunch of you know adolescents getting killed. <laughs> no one started with that. <laughs> you know. It was more like, yeah. what, what's happening to this kitten in this one scene, or what's happening to this turtle sort of a thing. That were the yeah. things that really seemed to hit their hit their buttons and bother them. So yeah. it's amazing, even myself writing that book or other books that I've written, and just like, um, it's great. That reaction is fun, though. <laughs> yeah, is why we love horror. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> uh, so one last question, and then we'll jump into the, the quick fire round. Um, sure. If all of your work got lost to the great outbreak of digital flatworms in 2020, and you ate all of your backup drive, your Dropbox everything it, it's pretty bad dude and you lost all but one of your books uh which book would it be and why oh that's a good question hmm well probably my, my answer would be a book that i haven't written yet because i think every novelist mm. uh, you guys as well probably feel like your best works ahead of you yeah but if we're just working with what we've got here oh i don't know i mean i could say anything but it might be my first book it might be rust and bone you mm. know because i said like uh it's not that it's the best book I've written. It's not that it's uh, the one that's done the best financially or that has the most readers, but it's like, I do truly think that no writer ever writes a book like their first book. Yeah. There's something about that first book and they've never faced criticism. So to me, it's like to use like an American baseball analogy. It's like you're, you're sitting in the batter's box and you're just taking the biggest cuts with the bat. You don't care if you strike out. You don't care if you look stupid because you're not even really recognizing you could look stupid. Yeah. And sometimes you do, but other times, you know, your voice finds a certain power. Um, and I think, I don't know, you're not holding back in any way. And in, yeah. and in, there's, there's a certain, there's some about that that's really interesting. Yeah. So yeah, 
that's the answer I'll give you today. We could talk tomorrow and be a different answer. <laughs> cool. Uh, right, quick fire round. So we've got sure. 10, ten questions. Um, you've got about five seconds to answer each question. Okay, all right. Don't worry Good. too much. Uh, Dan, do you yeah. want to take the first one? Yeah, I just realized I've accidentally closed the window. Maybe you should go for the first one. Okay, I'll wait till you. Okay. Good to get you. I've got it. You ready? I'm good. Okay. Yep. What was the second to last book you read? The Case Against Satan. Uh, favorite author? Stephen King. What's your favorite alcoholic beverage? Beer. Favorite city? Uh, St. Catharines. The first film you ever loved? Sorry, go ahead. The first film you ever loved? E.T. Uh, the one person you'd want to meet? Stephen King. <laughs> <laughs> have you ever eaten escargot? I have. Hold on, what was it like? <laughs> okay, yeah. Well, we, we have eaten like escargot and like we have periwinkles out here, which are like the same like mollusks that you find on the side of rocks after low tide. I'm not a fan. <laughs> um, favorite creator who's not a writer? I'll go with Cronenberg. Okay. What film makes you cry? Film makes me cry. You know, Million Dollar Baby always makes me cry. Cool. And the last one, where can we follow you and your work? I have a website, www.craigdavidson.net. Cool. Uh, you can, if you, anyone else, Twitter or you can, you know, you've got longer than five seconds. The Nick Cutter. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, quick thanks to Disaster Feast for the intro and outro music, Acast for hosting the podcast, the listeners for listening, our patrons over at patreon.com forward slash Hawk and Cleaver. Thanks to Dan, my co-host, for being here, because without you, would be alone. Thanks, Dan. You're welcome. And once again, thanks, thanks, Nick. Thanks for coming on. It's uh, been an absolute pleasure. Well, yes. thank you very much, Dan. Thanks, Luke. I appreciate it. Really do. That was. Those are some lo- lovely questions, too. I appreciate it. Thanks for letting me ramble on. <laughs> no worries. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Story Studio Podcast. Still hungering for some podcast goodness? Then why not check out our other show, The Other Stories. Oh, and did you know, every time you leave us a review in the iTunes store, a puppy is born. Cute, eh? Anyway, toodle pip.